This evening we're looking at Joshua chapter 3. Israel passes over the river Jordan. In the book of Numbers you can read that when the Lord delivered the children of Israel from their afflictions in Egypt, 12 of the people were sent by Moses to spy out the land of Canaan and after 40 days they returned. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, gave a positive report. Caleb said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Both Joshua and Caleb said, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. (coughs) As for the other ten spies, they brought up an evil report of the land, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. That negative report and all the moaning angered God, and what followed was that the Lord extended the Israelites' stay in the wilderness by one year for every day that the spies had been in the land of Canaan. What we have now in Joshua chapter 3 are the Israelites finally crossing over the Jordan some 40 years later, by which time the carcasses of all who had murmured against the Lord from 20 years of age upwards had fallen in the wilderness. As for Joshua, well, obviously he wasn't one of those whose carcass fell in the wilderness. He was about to bring the Israelites into Canaan as the successor to Moses. As for Caleb, according to chapter 14 and verse 14, Hebron became his inheritance because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. What we have in today's passage of scripture, Joshua chapter 3, is the written record of the Israelites passing over the Jordan into Canaan. I say the written record, let's remember this is God's record of when the Israelites passed over the river Jordan into that land which was flowing with milk and honey, Canaan. Details are given of the priests standing on the brink of the river as they bore the Ark of the Covenant and it is written that the waters stood upon a heap. The Israelites then passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. What a spectacular sight that must have been and what an amazing demonstration of God's power that must have been. First of all, more than conquerors in Christ. Let's have a look again at Joshua chapter 3, the first six verses. 
a Joshua rose up, rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim, and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass, after three days, that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go. For ye have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant, and pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant, and went before the people. After the return of the two spies, who had gone to Jericho and lodged at the house of the harlot Rahab, that we considered that last week in chapter 2. After they returned, Joshua gave orders to the Israelites to move camp from Shittim to Jordan, where they would spend the night before crossing over the river into Canaan. During their 40 years of wilderness wanderings, the people had followed a pillar of cloud by day and they followed a pillar of fire by night. And they were pledges of God's presence, his guidance, his protective care. Now in Joshua chapter 3, they would follow the Ark of the Covenant, which would be borne by the priests and the Levites, most likely from the clan of the Kohathites. <clears throat> As with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the Ark of the Covenant was a token of God's presence with his peculiar people or his special people. Despite there being over 600,000 fighting men among the Israelites, the Ark of the Covenant would go before the people. In other words, God, who was giving them Canaan as their inheritance, he would lead them, he would guide them, and he would most certainly give them the victory against the various enemies that they would encounter. For example, as shall be seen in more detail, when we get to chapter 6, even before Jericho was conquered, the city was compassed by the Ark of the Covenant, which was carried by the priests. When you think of all those Old Testament Israelites, perhaps two million of them, including the men of war, preparing to enter Canaan, I wonder where you might see yourself in that huge congregation. Where would you see yourself had you been there? Perhaps as far back as possible and certainly nowhere near the front. The thing is that the God of your salvation has provided you with an armour of defence. 
and even a weapon of offence, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. As Spurgeon said, brethren, you are soldiers enlisted when you believed in Jesus. Let me remind you that you are a soldier. You will be always at war. You will never have a furlough or conclude a treaty. Like the old knights who slept in their armour, you will be attacked even in your rest. There is no part of your journey to heaven which is secure from the enemy. And no moment, not even the sweet rest of the Lord's day, when the clarion may not sound. Therefore, prepare yourselves always for the battle. Put on the whole armour of God and look upon life as a continued battle. Be surprised when you have not to fight. Be wonderstruck when the world is peaceful towards you. Be astonished when your old corruptions do not rise and assault you. You must travel with your sword always drawn and you may as well throw away the scabbard for you will never want it. You are a soldier who must always fight, and by the light of battle you must survey the whole of your life. And as the Lord went before the congregation of Israel, remember they didn't know what they were heading for, they had no idea. They had the Ark of the Covenant before them. That was all they knew. The Lord went before the congregation of Israel and led them into Canaan and gave them the victory over their enemies. And just as that happened, the Lord Jesus Christ, who destroyed him that had the power of death, the devil, when he bore and took away your sins at the cross, has given you, dear Christian, the victory. Although, as we've heard from Mr Spurgeon, you're a soldier in a battle, I certainly relate to that, especially the bit where he talked about uh, your old corruptions rising up and assaulting you. Certainly relate to that one. Even so, Christ has given you the victory. As the Apostle Paul said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so it is that each and every day you don't advance in your own strength. You have no strength of your own. But as a Christian, you have the mighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, leading you, guiding you. As the hymn writer said, fight the good fight with all thy might. 
Christ is thy strength, Christ thy right. Secondly, the Lord is to be had in reverence. I want to read verses 2 to 4 again. And it shall and it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host. And they commanded the people saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests the Levites bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Come not near it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. The children of Israel were to keep a distance of about two thousand cubits away from the Ark of the Covenant. That's about nine thousand Meters, sorry, 900 meters, 900 meters, which is just over half a mile. That's quite some distance. About 400 years after crossing the River Jordan, the Philistines, they defeated Israel and captured the Ark of the Covenant. However, the enemy was sorely afflicted and so they mounted the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And they attached the cart to two oxen and sent it away. But there was no one to steer the cart. Even so, the cart arrived in the Israelite town of Beth Shemesh. However, the people were curious and they looked into the ark, resulting in God striking them with a great slaughter. Beth Shemesh was an Israelite town. People looked in the Ark of the Covenant and God struck them with a great slaughter. From there the Ark was taken to Kirjath-Jerim until eventually King David gave instructions for it to be brought to Jerusalem. However, on that journey, one of the two drivers of the cart, Uzzah, put out his hand to steady the Ark when the oxen shook it And we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there for his error and there he died by the ark of God. This is Uzzah. He touched the ark of the covenant and God struck him dead. The point I'm trying to make here is that we do well to remember that the Lord who led Israel, his peculiar people, and who leads us, who belong to Jesus, is a holy God and he is a consuming fire. Therefore, God is to be had in reverence and I'm saying that to everyone, including all of you who know God as your heavenly father. As it is written in Psalm 89 verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints in here and to be had in reverence of all that are about him. All of you who are greatly and everlastingly blessed because you are forgiven all your sins through faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no reason to fear the judgment of God. You have no reason to fear damnation. But you must surely have a godly fear. Again, quoting Spurgeon. God's children are those who most earnestly pray, hallowed be thy name. Irreverence irreverence is rebellion. Thoughts of the covenant of grace tend to create a deeper awe of grace, of God, a deeper awe of God. They draw us closer to him. And the more his glories are seen by us in that nearer access, the more humbly we prostrate ourselves before his majesty. As I've pointed out before, you don't really expect the, the, the world to prostrate themselves before God. They will do one day. But of all the people in the world, who is it that one would expect to fall prostrate before God? Those who know him. His children. And you'll see that to be the case in the Bible, including the Old Testament. The saints had a godly fear. They weren't pally with God. Consider Abraham, who is said by the Apostle Paul to be the father of all them that believe. He demonstrated that he had a reverential fear of God when he bowed himself toward the ground in Genesis chapter 18. And then just a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 22, the Lord said to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and offer him for a burnt offering. And just as Abraham was about to offer his son Isaac, about to slay him, the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou Fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, for me. Again, Abraham, the father of all those who believe, he feared God. I trust that none of you dare to make exceptions when it comes to your communion with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and your worship of him. The elect angels most most certainly don't make exceptions, and nor should we. The angels in heaven cover their faces in the presence of the Son of God. And as we shall see, when we we get to chapter 5, in a couple of weeks' time perhaps, Joshua took off his shoes in the presence of the Son of God, for for the ground that he stood on was holy ground. Do we have the attitude of heart whereby we take off our shoes because we're standing on holy ground when we worship Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Dear Christian, your God is a thrice holy God and you of all people ought to know that. Even though you don't have to keep a distance of 2,000 cubits from God, 
even though you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and even though Christ dwells in your heart by faith, your worship of God is to be reverential and conducted in the beauty of holiness with the enabling of God, the enabling grace of God. That, of course, places a great responsibility on church fellowships, including our own one, to, at the very least, seek to worship God as people who, in our worship, acknowledge his absolute holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Thirdly, the Lord began to magnify Joshua in the sight of all Israel. Look at verse 7 again. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. What was about to happen with the Israelites passing over the Jordan was reminiscent of what happened 40 years earlier when they were hemmed in between the Red Sea and Pharaoh who was advancing on them on them with his army. On that occasion the sea was parted providing a safe passage for the Israelites and it also provided a death trap for the Egyptians when it closed up on them. Before that miracle happened Moses said to the people fear ye not Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians, whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Then Moses, he stretched out his hand, he was holding his rod in his hand, he stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to separate. That miracle undoubtedly belonged to, not to Moses, but to the Lord. But also Moses was magnified and clearly seen to be God's anointed. There were many other occasions when the Lord was seen to be with Moses, such as when the Lord inflicted plagues upon Egypt, to name but ten other occasions. And now in Joshua chapter 3, we see the beginning of the Lord magnifying Joshua in the sight of all the people. Even before the water in the River Jordan, which was abundant at that time of the year, was piled up in a heap in order to provide a safe and dry passage for the Israelites into Canaan. The Israelites, they would have realised that the Lord was somehow or other communicating to Joshua about what was going to happen. And the obvious conclusion to be drawn by the Israelites was that the Lord was with Joshua. That close communion between the God of Israel and his servant Joshua continued and it was attested to at the end of this book. In chapter 24 verse 29 it is written, 
And it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. Servant of the Lord is precisely what Moses is described as in the very first verse of this book. Both of those men showed themselves to be servants of the Lord and faithful in all of God's house, Israel. But ultimately, God being with his servant points to the Lord Jesus Christ, about whom Isaiah prophesied and said the following, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Over 1,400 years after the Lord began to magnify Joshua before all the people, he began to magnify Jesus when the Holy Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, when he was publicly anointed for the work that his father had sent him to do. After his baptism, Jesus did the first of his miraculous works at a wedding feast in Cana, Galilee. He turned water into wine, into the very best wine. And in so doing, he manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. What followed in the next three years were miraculous works, one after another, from the servant of the Lord, many of which are recorded in the Gospel books, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Finally, Joshua chapter 3 ends with all the people passing clean over the Jordan into the land that the Lord gave as an inheritance to them. However, as has already been pointed out in recent times, the land that Israel was about to enter would be possessed through much fighting and death. However, all of you who are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins have an infinitely better inheritance than Canaan earthly Canaan. Yours is a heavenly inheritance. You are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, who wholly followed the Lord God of Israel when he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, carrying the weight of your sin. You have it on the authority of the scriptures that when Jesus comes again, in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will say to you, to each one of you who are trusting in him, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Even now, dear child of God, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest of your inheritance. That's something to ponder, something to cherish in your heart, isn't it? that you have a heavenly inheritance. Most of all, by far, the Lord is your inheritance. As David said in Psalm 16 and verse 5, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. 
What more could you possibly ask for? What, what more could anyone ever desire than to have Jesus? To have him as your portion, as your everything. Amen.